This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Is Pope Francis the leader of those who want to destroy capitalism or their pawn? It often appears that Pope Francis's Vatican is trying to abolish free markets. Since the beginning of his pontificate, Francis has used biblical language about helping one another and caring for the poor. However, he wrenches those phrases out of their proper contexts as determined by the church teaching developed over the centuries. Like many modern-day leftists, Pope Francis is not primarily interested in improving people's lives, but making them equally miserable. Mr. Julio Loreto explores this theme in his essay, The Economy of Francis Pushes Poverty and Pulverizes Achievement. Those who have lived under communism experienced not only its dictatorial nature, but also the drabness of its daily life. A communist regime is marked by poor lighting, non-existent maintenance, dilapidated buildings, meager food, empty shelves, dull clothing, little choice of entertainment, absence of superfluous goods, and other somber elements. This drabness is an obvious consequence of the economic failure of communist regimes. However, there is also a philosophical reason behind it. The communist system is designed to encourage laziness. Outside of the privileged few of the nomenclatura, no one has the right to seek out greater well-being based on a systemic, quantitative, and qualitative increase in effort. Indeed, The essence of communism is the totalitarian principle of equality. No one can have more than the other since it would produce quote-unquote alienation. Thus, the only way for everyone to be equal is for all to be poor. When all are poor, all are equal. This egalitarianism is the key to understanding Pope Francis's latest encyclical and the international event, The Economy of Francis, recently held in Rome. The event's message is that poverty is the means. The goal is egalitarianism. The notorious liberation theologian, now self-proclaimed eco-theologian, Leonardo Boff, was the keynote speaker in The Economy of Francis event. He claims that the gist of the encyclical Fratelli Tutti is the world's transition from the concept of Lord to that of Brother. In an essay that anticipated his lecture, Boff affirms that Pope Francis wants to change the current world paradigm based on, quote, inequalities in every field, unquote, by introducing a new one based on a, quote, unquote, universal fraternity, that is, a quote-unquote fraternity of equals. According to Boff, this egalitarianism runs so deep that even the laws of nature would need to change and conform. He reasons that the laws of nature reflect the overwhelming power of a governing God, who is therefore the source of all quote-unquote alienation. In his egalitarian new world, Reality would need to be canceled. Of course, canceling God outright would be a bit too shocking. These radicals begin by dissolving his transcendental nature, treating God as an energy or as a fluid circulating in the universe. 
Boff claims that the immediate sensory perception of this energy would generate the quote unquote universal fraternity proposed by Pope Francis. In another essay, the Brazilian liberation theologian explains that his paradigm change is characterized by the transition from the quote unquote dominion of the logos to that of quote unquote eros. In addition, Proposing poverty as an ideal for all as a means to equality is also a bit too shocking. Thus, they begin by manipulating the concept of consumption in a way that promotes pauperism. This manipulation has long been encouraged by the left, well before Pope Francis. 19th century Jesuit father Luigi Taparelli de Azeglio explains the proper role of consumption. He states that God created man with faculties and tendencies that the human nature tends to satisfy. This tendency constitutes man's good. It is consubstantial with his nature and leads him toward the purpose for which he was created. Man has a material purpose, which is the conservation and development of his body. He has a spiritual purpose, which is the development of his intellect and soul, which tends toward the absolute good. Thus, Taparelli teaches that, quote, a being will be perfect when he reaches the end set for himself by his nature, material and spiritual, with the faculties given to him by nature itself, unquote. To achieve his dual material and spiritual purpose, man must consume. Certain modern and even Catholic schools of thought would like to turn consumption into a dirty word. However, Temperate consumerism is a conditio sine qua non for man to achieve the purpose for which he has been created. Like everything created by God, what is good for man is also good for the economy. What does it mean to consume? Most people associate it with eating, which is certainly included in the concept. However, it also embraces many other ways that appetites are satisfied which result in well-being. The idea of consumption covers the gamut of bodily and spiritual appetites found in human nature. These goods go beyond the bare necessities of life, like eating. They expand into areas that are, strictly speaking, not essential for living. Thus, man can satisfy spiritual goods in theaters, museums, beautiful monuments, libraries, and so on. The concept of consumption includes everything indispensable for survival, but also everything that is ample and even superfluous, making life pleasant and elevating minds toward higher things. A lady consumes when she buys a beautiful enamel miniature portrait to display at home for the joy of her guests. A married couple who goes to the Prima della Scala Opera House to enjoy a performance also consumes. A faithful Catholic who assists a beautiful Latin mass consumes. This healthy notion of consumption is contrary to a new emerging theological concept, which tends toward socialism. Alas, it is found in recent pontifical documents. The trend states that when some have a lot and others have little, the former must keep only the essentials and give the excess to the latter. This anti-consumerist bias holds that man must not possess beyond what is essential. Nobody should seek after luxury or even merely an ample amount of goods. 
The result of such reasoning is that in a society where no one benefits from working more than others, no one will work harder than others. Such a society benefits the lazy and works to the detriment of good workers. In this society, abundance disappears first, then the ample things, and finally, even necessary goods. Those who work more must be given due compensation. Thus, all society benefits when the most capable, efficient, productive, best sectors are rewarded. Society perishes when it falls into preconceived anti-consumerism, slips into chronic poverty, and finally tends to barbarism. This thesis not only applies to the relations between social classes, but also to nations. The so-called consumerist countries like the United States and European nations represent those with excessive wealth. The third world countries are supposedly those that lack the ample and sometimes even the necessary means to survive. Thus, the rich nations exploit and oppress the poor ones. The thesis incites the exploited nations to launch a counteroffensive against the consumerist world, forcing it to lower its consumption level to harmonize with the poor. Again, when all are poor, all are equal. The glorification of laziness is proper to socialism and communism, not to Christian civilization and the social doctrine of the church. Pope Francis is busily making plans to implement his leftist economic ideas. This can be seen in the activities of his new Council for the Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican. Mr. John Horvat examines his organizations and its goals in his essay, Are the Vatican and Business Leaders Working to Improve or Destroy Capitalism? Socialism has failed worldwide because it uses the government's brutal power to force people into its anti-natural program against private property. It also suppresses the social, economic, and religious forces that are the natural defenses against its destruction. However, the ideological virus has the uncanny ability to mutate. When one plan shipwrecks, Its ideologues merely repackage it into a new appeal to the masses with different class struggles co-opting new proletariats. Socialists also enlist the suicidal help of those who stand to lose the most when a revolution happens. One of socialism's latest mutants is especially harmful. It consists of the Council for Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican a roundtable of 27 prominent business leaders, ominously called the quote-unquote guardians. They have recently teamed up with church officials to promote quote, sustainable and inclusive economies, unquote, for all peoples. This project is marketed as a way to improve capitalism, not promote socialism. However, the telltale signs of socialism are everywhere to indicate that the new effort is merely the latest repackaging of the old, oft-rejected idea. It will use socialism's most natural enemies, the church and business, to push its agenda upon the world. Four signs reveal this deceitful and masterful maneuver. The first sign of trouble is the appearance of buzzwords and terms like the Great Reset, and Stakeholder Capitalism, or Inclusive Capitalism, in the project's literature. 
These terms refer to the plan to quote unquote reimagine capitalism to reflect the needs of all society, not just investors. The Great Reset is a project of the World Economic Forum that calls for the quote unquote evolution of capitalism to make it more sustainable and inclusive. Additional leftist buzzwords. Such language avoids any moral or religious terms that might oppose socialist thought's naturalistic perspective. The second sign that the new plan does not bode well is the makeup of the new council. The guardians of inclusive capitalism are officials from megabanks, big business, the United Nations, the state of California, the Rothschild banking dynasty, Visa, BP. MasterCard, the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations, and others. The list reads like a who's who of those found on the wrong side of all moral issues. Many of these giants of woke capitalism have long promoted agendas contrary to Catholic teaching on issues like abortion, contraception, homosexual vice, transgenderism, and gender studies. Moreover, these quote-unquote guardians cannot be ignored, since they represent the cream of the liberal establishment. They hold more than $10.5 trillion in assets under their management. Their companies have over $2.1 trillion of market capitalization and employ 200 million workers in over 163 countries. A third indication that the project is wrong in its globalist approach is that the Guardian's efforts are not just honorary titles granted as window dressing to make their work look more Christian. It is part of a top-down global effort to impose new standards on all nations and industries. The project takes most of its cues from the liberal wish list of causes that favor a more egalitarian, more socialist world. The quote-unquote Guardian's will work with the Vatican to promote environmental, social, and governance, ESG, benchmarks to shape economics to be more inclusive, sustainable, and fair. Council members have already committed to hundreds of measurable ESG actions. They will meet with Pope Francis and Cardinal Peter Turkson annually to evaluate progress toward these goals. The final sign of socialist content is the class struggle narrative found in the Council's discourse and literature. The socialist version divides history into a struggle between so-called oppressors and oppressed, rich and poor, majority and minority peoples. The project's demand for inclusion and diversity originates in this narrative. Typical of this rhetoric are the words of council founder Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. She says that, quote, This council will follow the warning from Pope Francis to listen to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor and answer society's demands for a more equitable and sustainable model of growth, unquote. Absent from this discourse is any reference to grace and supernatural means the harmony of all social classes, moral reform, and the role of Christian charity. 
This omission is especially afflictive since the Vatican's function is to provide guidance considering the moral and supernatural means at the Church's disposal. The Church has always opposed the socialist perspective since it employs unnatural means that violate divine and natural law. The Council for Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican looks for naturalistic solutions to problems based upon an erroneous worldview. It is the wrong people, using the wrong criteria, at the wrong time. Only the help of God, the Blessed Mother, and grace can save the modern sinful world and provide real solutions. Like all such philosophies and socialist mutants, it will eventually fail because it mocks God, who is the way, the truth, and the light. As we've just seen, Pope Francis's goals are assisted by other economic globalists. At the same time, some of Francis's support comes from surprising places, as we see in Mr. Horvat's essay, The Rockefellers Push for the Suicide of Big Oil. Many correctly see the quote-unquote Green New Deal as a great government threat to the nation. The proposed legislation would introduce drastic restrictions on industry and change the American way of life. The culprit of this self-destructive campaign is a government that imposes itself on the population through laws, rules, and regulations, costing trillions of dollars. Government can, indeed, be a threat to business. However, the greater danger to business might well be business. Some large players in the financial markets have the power to be game-changers. They can implement the Green New Deal without government, regulations, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Big banks are being pressured to engage in this suicidal game. They are asked to start defunding big oil companies, which need credit for major infrastructure projects. The activists in this campaign are not eco-freaks or far-left ideologues. They are members of the liberal establishment, and some come from well-known business dynasties. A recent op-ed in the New York Times illustrated this point well. It was signed by three fifth-generation members of the Rockefeller family, David Growald, Peter Gill Chase, and Valerie Rockefeller. They call for the death of big oil. The trio acknowledges the role that fossil fuels played in establishing the wealth of their family. After all, oil tycoon J.D. Rockefeller was the founder of the Standard Oil Company. Their great-grandfather, John D. Rockefeller Jr., later helped found what is now J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, known then as the Rockefeller Bank, which funneled a lot of capital into the industry. Nevertheless, these latter-day Rockefellers say that the time has come for the big banks to defund the fossil fuels industry. Climate change political correctness dictates that the future must be green. The authors say that the bankers must, quote, embrace innovation and move beyond the profits of fossil fuels, unquote, to develop models less in line with the Harvard Business School and more in line with the Paris Climate Agreement. Weaning big money from big oil is not easy. America runs on oil, 
and its use is integrated into every part of the economy. Green politics and rhetoric may sound good on paper, but they do not guarantee prosperity in the real world. Since 2016, 35 of the nation's largest banks have extended $2.7 trillion in credit to the fossil fuel industry and its infrastructure projects. Ironically, J.P. Morgan Chase is among the largest lenders, leading the pack with 36% more financing than Wells Fargo, the nearest competitor. The finance giant is not alone in refusing to kick the habit. No major American bank has committed to defunding the oil companies. The Rockefeller authors warn that continuing on this trajectory, quote, will guarantee a world with runaway climate disruption, unquote. The Rockefellers and the liberal establishment exert pressure to push through their green revolution from inside the business world. The authors rejoice with the news that J.P. Morgan Chase announced goals for curtailing its lending activities in line with ecological metrics. However, they lament that there is no commitment from the bank to timelines or specifics. It is a welcome gesture, they say, but without real teeth. Not content with empty promises, the author trio outlines their plans to form Bank FWD. It will be a, quote, network of individuals, businesses, and foundations who will use their banking choices and public standing to persuade major banks to phase out their financing of fossil fuels and lead on climate matters, unquote. Bank FWD counts on a new generation of wealthy patrons who stand to inherit as much as $68 trillion from the richest boomers now in decline. These environmentally enlightened clients will insist that their banks abandon fossil fuels and adopt a zero-carbon future, which will be, quote, the greatest business and technological revolution in history, unquote. The authors have tragically subscribed to the false echo-narrative of the imminent disaster on the horizon. Their response reflects a suicidal course regarding their wealth. They use their standing as scions of an old oil dynasty to call for that industry's own destruction. The tactic of defunding, also used against the police, deprives the opposition of the means of survival. In their wrong-headed optimism, they are all too ready to put America under the tyranny of the Paris Climate Agreement. The radicals promoting the Green New Deal need not rely only on government action to advance their revolution. Radical legislators like AOC might run the eco-reform flag forward, but elements of the liberal establishment inch toward it and even join the revolution to force society's change. In pursuing this course, the trio follows the example of countless others before them in times of revolutions past, like the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. These revolutions were advanced less by the efforts of so-called oppressed workers or government officials than the suicidal actions of ideologically corrupted and rotten elites who toiled happily for their own self-destruction. This concludes the podcast. Is Pope Francis the leader of those who want to destroy capitalism or their pawn? Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world.
your prayers are appreciated. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the ideological message behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.